0: is that your sigh yes i'm a race car now my voice is all fucked up probably because i'm enjoying a wonderful Mm. cafe bustello with lots Mm. of milk and sugar i'm morgan by the
1: way and i'm isabeau and this is womance a podcast about romance novels. About Cafe Bustello with lots of milk and sugar.
0: <laughs>
1: about soap stars. About studio flicks. What was it? <laughs> Netflix, but not Netflix. The off brand. Uh, about the celebrity news and gossip industry. About dad gum secret babies. Uh, About intimacy coordinators in television. Most of all, it's about that first thing, though. Romance novels. And Ourselves. ourselves. This week! We're talking about You Had Me at Ola by Alexa Staria. So this book just came out. It
0: literally just came out. Isabel and I both bought it mm-hmm. because the Chicago Public Library doesn't have it yet. But with that in mind, like uh, this is the first time we're reading something brand spanking new. And so I do think some people might not be familiar with us, have just found us. We uh, we spoil books on this show. So I think maybe we should lead with just like a soft initial thoughts. Is it a woman? Nomance or no man's. Just to see if we recommend it. And then you can go out and check it out from the library or buy it from your local bookseller and then come back and listen to the episode later. Or if you've already read it and just want to listen in. Or if you don't plan on reading it and you want to listen in, you can continue on. What do you think? Should we start off
1: with a womance or a nomance? Holy shit, we've never done it this way. This is new territory. I mean, I'm down if you are. I know. We might come to a new conclusion by the end, but let's do this. I mean, it's a romance for me. No question. I would also say it's a romance. All right, that said, let's dive into the back cover. Spoilers beware. Yeah, spoilers are going to happen. We're going to read the back of the
0: book and then we'll probably start spoiling the book immediately in this moment. So if you're interested in reading it after our initial endorsement, please go read it.
1: Yeah. Okay. do you want me to read the back of the book? Yeah, you read the back of the book. Okay. Leading ladies do not end up on tabloid covers. After a messy public breakup, soap opera darling Jasmine Lynn Rodriguez finds her face splashed across the tabloids. When she returns to New York to star in a bilingual romantic comedy television show, Jasmine figures her leading lady plan should be easy enough to follow until a casting shakeup pairs her with telenovela hunk Ashton Suarez. Leading ladies don't need a man to be happy. After he was killed off his last telenovela, Ashton is worried his career is dead as well. Joining his new cast as a last minute addition will give him the chance to show off his acting chops to American audiences and ping the radar of Hollywood casting agents. To make it work, he'll need to generate smoking hot on-screen chemistry with Jasmine. Easier said than done, especially when a disastrous first impression smothers the embers of whatever sexual heat they may have had. Leading ladies do not rebound with their new co-stars. With their careers on the line, Jasmine and Ashton agree to rehearse in private. But rehearsals lead to kissing, and kissing leads to a behind-the-scenes romance worthy of a soap opera. While their on-screen performance improves, the media spotlight on Jasmine soon threatens to destroy her new image and expose Ashton's most closely guarded secret.
0: I feel like leading ladies don't end up on the cover of tabloids is the love is never having to say you're sorry of 2020. Ugh. It's just not true. It's just
1: not true. (laughs) All right. Where do you want to start? I think we should start off with Jasmine, our heroine.
0: All right. Cool. So Jasmine is an actress. Jasmine is described as an Aries about halfway through the book. Um, As an Aries, it became very difficult for me. And this is a fault of my own self, not a fault of the text, where I suddenly began measuring whether or not I felt like that was this was an accurate representation of an Aries or not. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings me to representation. Okay. So Jasmine is um, half Puerto Rican, half Filipina. She identifies as Latinx. And this book is... Full of Latinx characters. hmm what does Latinx mean? Because I think maybe we have some listeners who aren't familiar with that
1: terminology. I actually recently watched a YouTube video about the difference between Latinx and uh, Hispanic. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. It was. It was really fun. I feel like I learned a lot. Was it really fun? I mean, I feel like it was a good way of explaining cultural groups based on language versus other stuff. And Latinx as a term also encapsulates the diaspora in a way that Hispanic doesn't, so.
0: Also, um, Hispanic uh, references the Spanish language, which is the language of the colonizer in most of those cases. Um, So defining a people by their colonizer, some people identify as Hispanic. And if you meet someone and that's how they self-identify, of course, follow their lead. Latinx is the gender neutral, inclusive, currently accepted term Mm -hmm. for Latino and Latina peoples and non-binary folks who go by Latinx. Latinx refers to a group or a non-binary individual.
1: Latinx is a general neutral neologism sometimes used instead of Latino or Latina to refer to people of Latin American cultural or ethnic identity in the United States. Ripped right from Wikipedia. Also, on my Wikipedia page, it's highlighted. What do you mean it's highlighted? I don't know. The first thing is highlighted. I've never seen that on a Wikipedia page before.
0: Oh, that's interesting. All mm-hmm. All right. So she is working on this show called Carmen in Charge, which is an adaptation of a telenovela. I didn't realize this. The book told me that Jane the Virgin and Ugly Betty were also telenovela adaptations, which I didn't realize. I didn't realize that mainstream media has been adapting telenovelas for as long as it has. Mm -hmm. Well, Jane the Virgin is a pretty loose adaptation, but an adaptation nonetheless Of course, the off-brand Netflix wants to get in on the game, and so they are doing that with Carmen in Charge. We find out uh, over the course of the book that... Jazz, the heroine, she feels like an outsider in her own immediate family but has a very large extended family where she has a little clique of cousins that she identifies with. You know, they're her best cousins, her closest friends. She's originally from New York and she's returning to New York from Los Angeles to record Carmen in Charge. So we have the kind of volatility of returning to like a precarious familial situation and also the fact that she just went through like a really bad public breakup and we find out that it's not her first
1: rendezvous with that right she was romantically entangled with this person named McIntyre who sounds like a real piece of work I would be
0: interested in asking Alexis Daria if any of these characters were based on specific people. I think like the concept of a celebrity novel is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading it, I was like, well, it's not so different from a sports novel. And then I was thinking like, oh, it's not so different from like a historical novel because like the real like crux of a celebrity novel, it seems, or like something that's consistent is this like public infatuation that leads to this like gossip and this like perpetuating of half-truths and untruths on a scale that makes a relationship more difficult. But that's something, you know, that happens in historicals as well. And so, like, are celebrity romance novels just, like, doing that thing that, like, Duke novels do, but for contemporary audiences who don't like sports? Are celebrity romances contemporary Duke romances for indoor people? Yes, yes discuss.
1: Yes, I think that is an astute observation and one that I'm really glad that you made. I will say what I find interesting and nuanced about Alexis, Daria's celebrity novels, because this is her third novel, Take the Lead and Dance With Me, operate with people in like a Dancing with the Stars romance knockoff. Right. She likes celebrity romance novels. She does. That's the oeuvre that she works in, not unlike writers who like to write historical tend to stay there but the thing that I find really interesting about the work of like these shows that she likes to set her novels in is that they're not A-list. Like nobody here is like they talk about wanting to get an Oscar nom or they talk about like oh you were nominated for the Daytime Enemy and like they get a Golden Globe by the afterword. Right and like there's something really I think interesting and valuable and like good about the stakes by setting it as like their aspirations are higher than where they're currently at in terms of their career and I think like the celebrity apparatus is such a big scaffolding that is easily accessible to an audience. So you can imagine a telenovela star and like our hero who got stuck there and wants to branch out. And our heroine who was in soaps for a long time is now making this transition. Like there's so much ladder climbing for a celebrity novel that it feels more complex than a sports novel for me. But I also don't like sports novels that much. I would argue
0: that this isn't so much a celebrity romance, although there is that element. I think it's much more of a workplace romance. I think it has more in common with something like the hating game. Yes than something, I don't know, celebrity. I haven't really been interested in celebrity romances. I was interested in this conceptually because of the telenovela aspect. But yeah, I think it's much more of a workplace novel than it is a celebrity romance novel. And it's because it really gets into the nitty gritty of like a workplace. Like it talks about those kind of relatable universal things like when you first started a new job like how invested are you going to get with your co-workers into your personal lives and our hero has lots of Baroque reasons to not get involved with his co-workers which speak specifically to his celebrity he had a stalker who broke into his home when his baby was asleep and so he wants to keep his child a secret a secret baby if you will is was actually a secret nine-year-old
1: yeah living in Puerto Rico <laughs>
0: living in Puerto Rico with his father and his grandparents yeah You know, and so that's very celebrity, like that wouldn't happen to your average Joe. But most of the conflict comes from that. And also like a lot of the the problems I had with the book weren't with the book as like a celebrity novel, so much as a workplace romance, which workplace romance, I know that I come across as like a real rebel cool person, but I actually really like rules. And like the HR concerns were this sticky mud that sucked onto the bottom of my shoes while I was traipsing through the beautiful meadow of this romance novel.
1: Mm hmm. I think what's interesting to me about that is like the celebrityness of it. And like, maybe this says something very particular about our culture. I'm so primed for leads in shows to be in love with each other or have an affair or a fling that like the HR-ness of it, like just super duper did not occur to me until like three quarters of the way through the book. Even after like the second encounter with the intimacy coordinator, where I was like, oh, don't leads just always fall in love with each other like this is like emotional work where you like really need somebody to go there with you so it makes sense to me that actors fall in love with each other all the time
0: I want to talk about the intimacy coordinator aspect of it because that to me is what made the HR stuff really come forward although I can point to a specific scene prior to that but I think another move that this book makes is like our two mains are dealing with our two mains our steak and our fish are dealing with celebrity-induced problems. But then they're pretty much immediately subliminated in the actual love story because, right, his secret baby lives in Puerto Rico and is a secret baby. And unlike other secret babies, like, that is a solution to the problem (laughs) rather than, like, the problem itself. Yeah. Until we get to the very end. And then, you know, she had this very public breakup that's very much gossip fodder, but she's turned off all of her social media so that she can focus on her job. And for me, that's another way that this book exists more as a workplace romance than a celebrity romance. Yeah. But the part that I got antsy with, so at the very beginning of the novel, our heroine meets with her two cousins and she's like, okay, like what am I going to do to fix this situation? I'm not in a place in my life where I feel good. I need to start living by other rules. And so they create these three rules That are not from a deficit standpoint, which I love that. I think it's Michelle who says, hey, you shouldn't come at this negatively. Don't talk about what you don't do. Talk about what you do do. Mm -hmm. And like one of the three things is that leading ladies only get on the cover of tabloids for good reasons. Once again, love is never having to say you're sorry. I'm going to go to the first chapter so I can get these correct.
1: I've got it. Leading ladies only end up on magazine covers with good reason. Two, leading ladies don't need a man to be happy. Turns into leading ladies are whole and happy on their own. And then Jasmine thought fast about the third one. Leading ladies take their career seriously. Turns into leading ladies are badass queens making hefe moves. Hefe moves. So,
0: yes. So she has these like rules that are going to guide her process. She meets the super dreamy lead of the show. He spills his coffee on her. We have a meet cute, a really classic, a meet cute. His name is Ashton Suarez, birth name Angel (laughs) Louise. I love that. I kind of hated that after she found out what his real name was, she kept referring to him as Ashton.
1: I do, too. I have that in my notes. I'm like, he gave you permission to use his like super secret, you know, non-stage name. Like, you should use it.
0: So there's a moment where she says she's out to dinner with her cousins after, you know, experiencing this attraction to him. He's a really big deal telenovela star. He's actually her grandmother's all time favorite telenovela star. Mm hmm. She's out to dinner with her cousins and she says, I'm not going to rebound with Ashton, she said firmly, more to herself than to Michelle. So I appreciate the fact that she's like setting a boundary for herself. It's a romance novel, so you know that it's not going to hold. But the fact that she becomes conscientious of her attraction, the fact that she has to state out loud that she's not going to rebound with this person kind of implies that like she has said to herself, I want to. And that kind of makes the HRness like a little weird. I don't know how you feel about this. Like, I know it's a romance novel. And like, of course, they have to be attracted to each other. And of course, they have to set their own boundaries because it would be semi-boring if they were just going to fall into it together. But then shortly afterwards, they have this intimacy coach meeting. And it really drove home for me that like, these are two people who are kind of doing a disservice to one another by being physically attracted to each other. Yeah, and I think like... I don't feel like 100% firm on that. I want to talk about it.
1: All right, let's talk about it, because I think what this book does that is so good is that she sets that boundary. He is also setting that boundary with himself where he's like, can't get involved for numerous reasons, not the least of which is my secret son in Puerto Rico. Please say secret, baby. Okay, secret baby, but also the workplace and that he has all these like career ambitions like they can't get involved. Well,
0: he like swore to never get involved with another co-star because a co-star is the mother of his child.
1: Right. And so like the fact that they're both fighting the attraction, then it becomes like attraction in the text of this book has so little to do with choice and so much to do with proximity and initial spark. The HR-ness of that. You know, you're right. Like as two very consummate professionals, that intimacy coordinator scene was so interesting to me because there's a moment where the coordinator Vera is talking to both of them and Checking in, And she pulls Ashton aside and she's like, is there anywhere that you don't want to be touched? Is there anything that you are uncomfortable doing? And it's the first time that anyone's ever done this for Ashton in his professional career. Like he's kissed a lot of strangers. He's kissed a lot of people. He's touched them in all sorts of ways. He's been touched in all sorts of ways. But to finally like have someone check in with him and be like, hey, what are you not okay with? What are you okay with? Like, let's have a conversation. And for this book to be really interested in the communication of that, but also to highlight, I think, a problem where it's like, we just assume that dudes want to kiss all girls every time, everywhere. And like, this was a good reminder that that isn't true for a whole host of reasons. And that I take your point that like, the fact that they give in to their attraction does feel like a sort of disservice to their professionalism, which they're both working so hard to maintain. But that's part of like the anxiety and catharsis of a workplace romance. You know you shouldn't, but you just have to.
0: Yeah, like this isn't so much about a romance novel because a romance novel doesn't exist without that because you just have to. Right. Do you think you have control over feelings of attraction? Do you think any human has control over feelings of attraction for another
1: person? I mean, I don't have an academic argument for this, but I would say... Well, it's not an academic question. It's a it's a personal question. <laughs> this feels different than the question Do you believe in ghosts? No, I don't think you have control over an initial attraction. What you do have control over, what you do with those feelings, how you react, and what ultimately you like decide to do with them. I
0: think you do. I think you do have control over an initial reaction. I don't. You are open to it or you're not open to it. I'm having a bit of a moment right now. Okay. I feel like you go into situations and you're Either open to being attracted to someone or you're not. I think you can, like, over the course of getting to know someone, I think you can whoopsie daisy develop an attraction. But I think, like, an initial attraction you absolutely have control over because it's just a matter of, like, thinking about things in context, right? Like, there's a way of thinking of, like, going into work orientation and thinking of the people around
1: you solely as. Co workers, not potential mates. Sure, but I don't think either of them walked into this with an openness for potential matedness. In fact, I think both characters would say that they didn't. Yes, that's true for a romance novel. It has
0: to be true for a romance novel.
1: But I also think in general, like, an initial attraction, like, some people are, like, genuinely beautiful to look at, and sometimes that can genuinely take you by surprise. Like, I have seen very attractive people in all sorts of settings, and I'm like, oh, man, you are super hot! And, like, that can be the end of it, and I agree there's, like, a certain amount of openness, right? I think being attracted to someone and understanding someone as
0: beautiful or too different things because like Hmm. I can look at other human beings the same way I look at renaissance paintings where I'm like wow Mm -hmm. you're really beautiful but I'm like not attracted to them does that make sense sure it's probably different for other beautiful people it's like when a renaissance painting looks at another renaissance painting I bet that renaissance painting is like if I could have sex with that renaissance painting I would but when a overfiltered Instagram picture such as myself looks at a renaissance painting like I might as well be looking at a mountain like I'm not gonna fuck that like so maybe that's why I can think in those terms maybe it's different when you're a pair of very beautiful telenovela stars and the world is your sex oyster
1: potentially but I also think that lots of people don't do the work of like separating like attraction from an initial like recognition of beauty. I think a lot of people would say those things are the same for them.
0: But I think like you're contextualizing it as work. I don't think it is work. It like just comes from like an understanding. I think it comes from like a set expectation. It's not really project you undergo, like something you have to conscientiously resist.
1: I think the resisting comes later. That's what I mean, where it's like, I think you can have an initial physical attraction to a person and then like that's where the other part of it comes in too because then they open their mouth and they say something terrible and you're like oh god oof no thank you you just got like way uglier that's really interesting
0: from my personal experience attraction has always come later and like an initial attraction is something that I've only experienced when I've been like open to an initial attraction when the context has been correct What do you think that's about?
1: I just think everybody's brains work differently, you know? I think maybe this is the thing, right? It's like physical attraction is like a permanent state. A, not inevitable, right? Because as we have both discussed, like you can get to know a person and they become more or less attractive. And so like this idea that like an initial spark or initial whatever feeling that you have is the permanent seed of that interaction, I agree that's not a true narrative. I don't think that's anyone's experience. And so sure, I think we should definitely Definitely, like this is why people say first impressions are important, but they shouldn't be the most important thing, right? It's like the way that people initially react to you isn't the only interaction that you'll have with them, isn't the most important one. And like, we should all be able to contextualize whatever that initial attraction, if there is one in that category of person that we meet.
0: I think everything you said is also true,
1: separate from what I'm thinking of. I mean, again, I genuinely think, at least in my experience, that like there is an initial sort of body reaction that is easy to turn off but like in my experience have not found a way to keep that switch off do you think it's because you
0: have a narrative of like physical attraction is something that just happens like is that a possibility I I think what I'm just saying is like, I think it is a possibility. I think maybe the reason we feel like it's a thing that just happens is because we've always been told this story, like the story. And you had me at Ola, but also like every (laughs) romance, like very few people are open to a romantic situation in contemporary romance, right? They're all like this idea of a career gal who have other priorities. Right. And then they just slip into this attraction to someone who is problematic in their personal lives
1: I also think it's much more like in terms of romance it's much more about chance and proximity but also like the thing I want to quibble with is this idea of openness to it like I'm not open to it in my work environment and so like the fact that I have a physical reaction to some people and not others like suggests something else to me is it a subconscious
0: openness Because a love story is a really interesting thing to be a part of. So we're always interested in becoming a part of a love story. So subconsciously. But I'm already
1: in a love story. So
0: the other great thing about being attracted to someone is that they might be attracted to you. And that's even if it's not mutual, like someone physically admiring you is also appealing like maybe that's part of it like you're putting out what you want in return I think everybody's brains work differently it'd be an interesting thought experiment it's just like an impossible thought experiment to execute because it would be like a subconscious idea of openness that's influenced by like a cultural narrative And also like, you know, how we place value on people.
1: And a million other factors. I mean, again, I like, I think chance and proximity have a lot to do with it. Well, chance and proximity, like that's, that's key to
0: anything happening. (laughs) Like, I remember when I started college and my mom was so worried about me meeting friends. And my brother was like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if she like self-selected into some rooms with people who would share her interests, meaning classes. And I think we self-select into those spaces all the time. We do. Um, You know, with the jobs we take, with the bars we go to, with the clubs we join, you know, the volunteer activities that we're participating in and opting into Carmen in Charge. Right. And it also speaks to like larger trends in contemporary romance. I promise this is relevant, more relevant than I'm making it seem. But she's self-selected into a telenovela based program she's going to be surrounded you know by latinx people she's going to have a co-star right there's that affinity already the fact that they have chosen the profession of acting like and they're both leads like they're both going to be like objectively cultural norm good-looking people right so you're self-selecting into this space of course So that's why I think, you know, chance and proximity, of course, they always play a really important role in like everything, though. Right. I don't know how specific that is to falling in love with your coworker.
1: I mean, I think the reason why I say chance and proximity is so important because it's like if you didn't take that job and you didn't meet that person, you wouldn't fall in love with them.
0: Of course, of course. But you're also, of course, exactly. That's what I'm saying. But it's also like if you didn't go to that grocery store and you didn't buy that cross contaminated chocolate bar, you wouldn't be having an allergic reaction.
1: Totally. You wouldn't be having salmonella.
0: Right. Like chance and proximity matter in all things. So I'm saying like all things being equal, (laughs) like I think like there might be like a subconscious openness I think romance and love and physical attraction feel like these like sweeping things. And we're we're just like spun around <laughs> in this, you know, undertow whenever they happen to us. And, th- and they do, they feel like so exhilarating as they're happening, even on like really small scales, you know, even if you just like think the guy at the grocery store is cute and he kind of looked at you, right? Like that still like releases all this dopamine. But what if you're having... Having that experience, not because you're like two beautiful people who find each other equally beautiful and you happen to be in this grocery store and isn't that magical. What if it was really just the fact that like you wanted to feel that that day? And so you got to feel that that day.
1: But again, I think if it's like subconscious, like how would you be able to track that? And I think you make a good point about a lot of our heroes and heroines who start off with a pretty hard line in the sand where it's like, I will never love again, or I won't date my co star, or whatever. Like, I hate Rick, specifically Rick. Yeah. The confrontation between a consciousness and an unconsciousness is interesting to hypothesize about, but I think some of the most deft places in this text in particular were moments where a spoken consciousness came into conflict with an admitted unspoken consciousness. Like, there's a part where it's near the end where Jasmine says, Last year I would have said no, but secretly thought yes, but now it's just no. Yes. But like, that's consciousness all the way through. Like, she's saying the right thing because that's what her girl squad wants her to say. And she knows that that's the thing that she should say. But that's not the thing that she feels. That's also a consciousness, right? That confrontation, which is not what you're talking about.
0: But what if like she has a subconsciousness that is supporting this other story? But it's not subconscious. She's aware of it and she's resistant to it because of the external forces. That like creates resistance, but it's like too little too late because you've already like in this initial moment of him spilling coffee on you have opened up this possibility of this other narrative
1: but i'm saying like that openness wasn't ever truly subconscious in the instance that she's talking about whereas in the opening pages of this book i would argue that like at least consciously she is resistant like there isn't a conscious openness whereas like the scene that i'm talking about the confrontation comes with the spoken resistance versus the internal acquiescence
0: I guess the really simplified question and talking through it has like really narrowed it down is like, can you be attracted without being at least subconsciously open to being attracted?
1: I mean, I don't know. I don't think anybody can really answer that question, or at least I'm like not qualified to do so.
0: We should all go to therapy. Yes. And we should all interrogate this. I know where I stand. But then I also get kind of like excited by the idea of like, you know, when we had our discussion about Whitney, my love, there's always been this story about like, we didn't understand rape, but clearly people did. People understood rape. They just chose not to care about it. Yeah. And then that became consciousness. Like, what if we can take something like I am always open to being attracted to someone because I want other people to be attracted to me because I want this specific kind of like possibility. In Fleabag season two, there's that great bar conversation where she says, when you're young and beautiful, there is always the possibility that someone's going to flirt with you and never take that for granted because that's fun, right? That's pleasurable. What if we're all like subconsciously open to that? Like what if we could have control Over like, would that ruin it? if we didn't believe that it was like this magical random thing happening would that ruin attraction for us or would it just make us like would it make us like more productive would it allow us to like open and shut that dopamine valve as we saw fit you know like choosing to be to have that moment in the grocery store for example like I think it has possibilities if it is true if there was a way of like trying to live that way like I think it could open up some really interesting possibilities but I think like the core of it is i think we really like this narrative of love being romantic love being something that happens randomly you always hear people they they go on a date and they're like there's no spark Like, so whatever mythical idea of what a spark is, whatever like intangible experience of a spark is, is the thing that determines whether or not they want to pursue someone romantically. Whereas like proximity, chance, but also crucially time are what we know builds affection,
1: I mean, I've heard lots of my friends say, ooh, that initial spark wasn't there, but we'll go on a second and third date to like try and locate it over the course of time. And I think also this idea of attraction and when you said romantic attraction and really siloed it into that space, that also made me think, well, no, I've had really what have felt like spontaneous not physical attractions, but like mental attractions to people over very limited space of time. Like when you meet someone and you're like, oh man, I want to be your friend so bad. It feels chemical in the moment. Not trying to discount anything of what you're saying. I'm just like not sure that Because I do genuinely believe that it's either so deeply embedded in the subconscious that's like, you know, been treated through, you know, toxic patriarchy and all of our other cultural underpinnings. I'm just not sure how much control we have over it. And of the cases of humans that do seem to have control over it, I'm thinking like monks in a monastery. I don't know that you can be so specific with the turning of that spigot right? Like if you turn it off for romance, are you turning it off for all intimate spontaneity encounters like that? I don't know. Maybe people should just
0: try it. Maybe you should try being like, okay, I'm going into this. I don't know whether or not I'm subconsciously open to being attractive to other people. But what if I go into this and say, like, assuming that I am, how can I recontextualize this space so that that would not be a possibility? Like, how can I dampen that influence i guess i just can't think of like a time in my personal like adult life but also like when i was young i was just open to it all the time
1: (laughs) and i know that i was you know I just don't know. And also leave room for the possibility that your brain works differently than other people's.
0: Everyone's brain works differently than other people's. The fact that I'm thinking about this
1: now is demonstrative of that. I don't think there's anything wrong with me. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just like this idea that like if I can turn it off, everyone should be able to. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's if I can turn it off, can other people turn it
0: off? Can we all turn it off? I think that's a worthwhile question. That is a worthwhile question. But the thing is, is like, I don't think people will even try. Oh, I think people try. I think what's the more powerful pull is this on the subconscious is this idea of being an attractive person and being a person who falls in romantic love or just physical attraction because both of those are, are powerful experiences. And like the pull would be both like wanting to be a part of that narrative that we've been repeatedly exposed to. And another part of it would be just Just like that power thing. Like it is a power, like to be someone who is sexually attractive to other people is a powerful thing.
1: But that's different than having an attraction to someone.
0: But you would put it out there in hopes of receiving it back. Projection.
1: I don't know that I think that attraction is a part of projection.
0: Oh, really? See, I would think like that's the most like obvious and arguable part of all of this. And I I do think it is significant that in contemporary romance, I don't know if I can think of an example, but listeners, please submit examples where the heroine isn't immediately resistant to the romantic connection that's inevitably going to happen over the course of the romance novel. And I guess I'm just wondering if I think a lot of us live that way. Is there a way of controlling that? And I think it's especially relevant whenever you think about something like a workplace, because how much more efficient would we be in a workplace if there wasn't a Jim and Pam situation?
1: Or a Scully and Mulder, or like, I don't know, because like Scully and Mulder seem to solve a lot of crimes. It's also like the will they, won't they is pleasurable to watch, even voyeuristically. It's also pleasurable to participate in. Certainly. But I think like where romance novels and even films lose their utility in this question is that they are built around eliciting audience pleasure.
0: Or maybe that's where like their utility exists, because why is there like the fact that it's able to elicit audience pleasure means that we are open and interested to identifying with that feeling and experience.
1: Sure, but it's an exaggerated one and one that ends in a particular way or doesn't in the case of some will they won't they what do you mean it's exaggerated why why would that
0: in what way is it exaggerated
1: like the situations that they find themselves in or how long a slow burn takes
0: and how is that a hindrance to the identification and pleasure you take in identification with a with a work of media
1: It's not a hindrance to the pleasure. But I think in terms of this reality based question, it loses its utility because ultimately it's the thing that is building the fantasy and the fantasy isn't something that you can apply to the reality.
0: That's interesting because in something like You Had Me at Ola, where like nothing really like nothing happens here that couldn't happen in real life, like it is heightened But it's not fantastical.
1: Yeah, it's heightened and not fantastical. So it feels within reach, but like it's still fantasy.
0: Right. I guess I don't see how that would shred the utility.
1: I don't think it shreds the utility. That
0: sounds like works of fiction would still have utility in addressing this question.
1: I didn't say it shredded the utility. I said that it has less utility, like its whole... I thought you said lost as in gone. Loses some.
0: Okay. So loses some utility. I think that's fair. I think it is still interesting, like, looking at this, like, because and it also, like, it would be a part of the cel- the perpetuating machine, stories like this.
1: Maybe, but then, it, like, that's also part of the whole thing with, like, the celebrity gossip part of this, where it's like, I am willing to see you that, like, we as a society are highly primed for romantic narratives. That's why Jennifer Aniston is perpetually on every other cover of Star, you know, linked with whoever and however, like, we as a society are indeed primed for romantic narratives. And I think, sure, lessening those narratives culturally would certainly be a part of maybe answering the subconscious question, but I don't know if it would do away with it entirely.
0: The other, the other interesting part about You Had Me at Ola is that we have this like story within the story, like they are living out a romantic celebrity story in the actual television production that they're doing. His character is a rock star and her character is his publicist ex-wife. And so there are these interstitial pieces from the script where we are in either the perspective of the character Character of Victor as portrayed by Ashton or we're in the perspective of Carmen as portrayed by Jasmine. And there are always like little nudges in those pieces that allude to the fact that this is performance and these are conscientious choices that I think is really interesting. And maybe is the thing that like, I don't know what sparked that question for me, but maybe it's that structure, like the romantic story within the romantic story and where does one begin and where does one end? And like the idea of an intimacy coordinator is really interesting because, you know, if I think about like really big deal sex scenes of the last 20 years, I think about atonement. I think about normal people, which just came out. And those were highly choreographed sex scenes. They weren't like letting the actors follow their instincts. They were rigidly scripted in the case of atonement or highly coached an intimacy coordinator in the case of normal people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I found the Victor Carmen moves jarring, in the same way that we had the conversation much earlier about their professionalism because the slippage between Ashton Victor and Carmen Jasmine. Because one of the things that was so strong about this book is that it did such a good job of like describing how doing 17 takes of a kiss is like weird and like work and not something that's like enjoyable because it's work and it makes you feel awkward. Also it's
0: an indicative that you're not doing your job properly.
1: Right. And they felt bad about it. And
0: the part of his job that he's doing improperly is feeling attraction. (laughs) Like, he does not have an actual emotional connection with... Jasmine because he's been keeping her at arm's length as he does with all of his colleagues, apparently.
1: Oh, that's not how I read that. In fact, like the book goes to pains to describe how physically attractive he finds Jasmine.
0: Right, but he doesn't have an actual connection with her because they don't spend time together. So that's when she goes to his trailer and is like, hey, we have to spend time together.
1: Right, but he has an initial physical reaction to her. But like the thing that's making that kiss awkward is that he feels so awkward because he's trying to tamp down his effect and attraction.
0: But also the fact that they don't feel comfortable around each other, just like Pat, which is interesting because like you think about a lot of jobs, does it impede your ability to do your job, whether or not you have a personal connection with the people you work with? I think it certainly makes a job more pleasurable and, and sometimes can make it things go smoother because you have that flow of conversation. But his structuring of work in his head isn't working because it's clashing with both his like actual physical attraction to her, as you rightly pointed out, and his lack of like knowing her as a person. He can't supersede his personal physical attraction with like feeling comfortable enough around her to do a performance.
1: Because in the novel, he's afraid getting to know her is only going to increase his attraction. Right. So then he's in a situation of damned if you do, damned if you don't.
0: Right. But he could, in theory, have just been like a normal. (laughs) Like He could have gotten to know her like that they become better performers by leaning into their instincts, but they have this like intimacy coordinator that's meant to alleviate the need for instincts. So
1: like that's kind of
0: an interesting rub, I
1: think. I think one of the things that I found most interesting about the intimacy coordinator as it overlaid onto their relationship is how having someone else choreograph and give you the beats of an intimate scene makes it rote, makes it less fraught, makes it less... Less all of the things that it is on the outside of their work. And so, like, that first kiss that's coordinated in the kitchen was really interesting. And finally, when they got it and, like, they could, like, high-five to show, like, their end ritual. I thought that was a really interesting way of sort of choreographing the emotions out of it so that the performance... And the work could sing for itself. But it didn't work out. No, and I thought that was interesting because, like, the moves felt right. And, like, the jarring moment was, like, they had all this good practice and that practice felt good. And then the crew was like, oh, the crew's trying to come in. And then the intimacy coordinator was like, I don't want to rush you. But then Ashton was like, oh, no, the crew should come in. And there wasn't that final check in. And then they had to do the 17 takes because, like, they had never
0: actually kissed prior to that.
1: Right. The whole mood had been interrupted. And
0: actually kissing is different from talking about actually kissing. Yeah. I guess I don't see where the, the discord between our two interpretations is.
1: I guess we don't have one.
0: So I think that intimacy coordinator, hot topic in media today. And I also think it's interesting, like romance that's published in the 21st century, the ideas of like consent and having open and honest communication are so important. And this is mediated by a third party in the, form of the intimacy coordinator to a certain extent. Jasmine doesn't tell him what her hard limits are. She tells the intimacy coordinator and the intimacy coordinator just takes that information on board, doesn't necessarily share it with Ashton, just like choreographs the scene, taking into account both of their hard limits. So they never have that conversation with each other in the scene, right? It's a way of having that conversation about like consent being important without having it within the actual sex acts themselves.
1: I thought so too. I thought it was really smart. And also talking about all the ways in which consent outside of physical, sexual relationship are also important. Like the ways in which we need to check in with each other around all sorts of bodily touches and comfort levels. And like, I thought the conversation around that was so interesting. And then, spoiler alert, the thing that hurt Jasmine most is that he didn't confide in her about his secret baby and that she's upset by the lie of omission not by the fact that he has the child in general which was his great fear and so like this whole idea around the primacy of communication as the bedrock of true intimacy I think this book does just such a varied and interesting job of like making that the central statement.
0: Right there's like a lot of slippage for that idea Jasmine goes to his trailer after the failed I mean they eventually got something usable from It, but the 17 takes of a kissing scene she goes to his trailer to ask him about it and he's like yeah I actually am very interested in and she interrupts him to say like you know she assumes he's going to say that they should sleep together and instead he says just spend time together to get to know each other more and so like she has this sexual attraction that I think she is acting on by like going to his trailer and kind of flirting with him and then making this assumption that he wants to sleep with her and then there is also like as they're falling in love as they're having like sex with each other you know starting a sexual relationship there's still this underlying idea of like deception and dishonesty like at the front end I think a lot of it is on Jasmine's part because she is trying to portray the idea that she's not interested in a relationship and maybe that's more like self-denial than deception on the part of like deceiving other people although she does kind of try to manage her expression of emotions to her cousins to a certain extent to keep them out and she tries to like sneak around with this person because she knows that it's against what she has set up as like her best interest like I think you're right it's really interesting that this book centralizes communication open and honest communication as the bedrock of a good relationship but also like Like, meanwhile, we have this like huge gap in like an open and honest communication, right? Like he's not telling her he has a child. He comes close and stops himself from doing it. When do you think someone has to mention to a partner that they have children?
1: I don't know. I actually asked myself in this because their romance is actually quite brief. And I didn't feel like he had to disclose the fact that he had a son, although I can understand why that would have felt like a betrayal. And I think ultimately like Jasmine gets that too. And then it's his reaction where he's like, you're trying to sabotage me and my career is really the miscommunication fire. Because like Jasmine does a lot of emotional load bearing, you know, she's like, oh, I get why you didn't tell me. Like, you know, I understand based on your stalker experience that you have a hard time trusting people. And she like does the work without him telling her, like meets him where he's at. And is like, I can understand I'm still hurt, but I understand. That felt like a really adult- internality for Jasmine which I was happy to see but like yeah I mean they've only known each other for like what eight weeks they're not really going on dates like they're intimate and he knows where she is in her sibling order but like she doesn't know his parents names like I guess she knew that his mom was dead but like when do you mention that you have a secret eight-year-old I had a
0: moment at which I was like well he has to tell her now noted in my book I would say in real life that's first date information because you don't want to get emotionally invested in someone who is not interested in being a parent with you and you don't want to get emotionally invested in someone if like you don't want kids and they have a kid totally so like with that in mind romance novels are different from real life but I think in real life it's definitely a first date thing and in the book I wrote at this point it does feel like a deception that he hasn't mentioned his son I think it's clear he understands Jasmine as a trustworthy person so it is starting to eek me Mm -hmm. and that's going to be in chapter 25 she asks him to stay the night and he agrees to stay the night and he tells her this story of um you know the break-in and stuff Right. Like he's sharing with her so much. Oh yeah. That he should be sharing with her that he has a kid. And I think like anytime you have a child and you're you know, you may think it's just gonna be a casual relationship, but as we discussed at length, proximity, chance, and time makes for a great deal of affection, inevitably. And so you should always be, I think, really upfront about that. And I think like the fact that he didn't do that was really unfair to Jasmine and was like not just like a lie of mission like that's a full on deception because having a kid is such a big deal yeah
1: it's a huge deal I mean, yeah, it is. It's truly a deception. She calls it correctly and does a lot of emotional work to sort of like meet him where he's at. His fear plays such a big part of that, but it's interesting because it's like his fear around protecting his kid rather than like the fear of how she would react to him being a single dad.
0: Well, it's like Drake rapped. I'm not trying to protect the world from my kid. I'm trying to protect my kid from the world.
1: Right. And so it's interesting to me that like one of his concerns is never like how would this person that I'm falling in love with react to the news that I'm a father. Like, that's not how he's thinking about it. Like, he thinks of himself as a father. He just doesn't think of himself as having a future with Jasmine. So then, like, the information doesn't feel pertinent because this isn't forever anyway, which is, like, a weird
0: move. It's so strange to me that we actually have a real-life context for a celebrity secret
1: baby in the case of Drake. Funny that your mind went to Drake because I was thinking specifically of that awful Republican congressperson who just came out with his secret baby. Ugh, Matt gets.
0: I wonder though if Drake had any lovers who were not aware of his secret baby. I wonder. Before it all came to light. Drake, if you could send us an email, womancemail at gmail.com.
1: We would love to hear the context of that experience. Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> It was a deception. I also, one of the things that I thought this book did a really good job of was describing what it is to have a supportive family, even as like you're doing shitty things. Ashton is keeping basically his whole family secret to, as you said, shrink wrap them and protect them. And he like never talks about them and never engages with them, but they like are super duper supportive. And then Jasmine's immediate family, her natal family as a tour, is like not very supportive of her. And like she like endures. Is a pretty toxic brunch where her older sister, the clear favorite, sort of gangs up on her with her mom to be like, Gotta get married and start producing, spawn to be of value, which was like an interesting conversation around what it means to have like support from your family.
0: Well, it's also, she says that really interesting line where she's like, Family comes first, which means making more family comes first, or something like that. And I thought that was really interesting, like a really pithy way of describing, like every on The Bachelor, like every Bachelor contestant is like number one most important thing for me is family. Like a lot of people feel very close with their family. There is one significant exception to that in the Bachelorette universe but I talk about that all the time. So, you know, what are you really relaying when you say you have family, like family super important to you? It, it does kind of imply like I would like to reproduce. I think this book did such a great job of illustrating that and why that could be a problem and why that could be a hindrance to feeling fulfilled you <laughs> Mm -hmm. The other thing that you pointing out that he's protecting his family, like he's making these choices for his family. Like he has decided for his father that he is going to raise his grandchild, right? Along with taking care of his own parents who are aging.
1: Yeah, in their 80s.
0: Yeah, like that's a very selfish move. Yeah. And at the end of the book, when his dad is finally like, here's the deal, Yadiel is going to live with you. Your son is going to live with you. You're going to take care of him. And the child chooses... For themselves that they're going to be homeschooled Was a little strange but the choices He has made are shitty on many Levels yes that I don't Think are necessarily like brought forward By the text like his deception Is definitely acknowledged in the book But like it also acknowledges the fact that He was like really unfair to his family By making these choices for them But you're right it's almost like they were Too supportive to like a detriment like They let him get away with too much
1: Almost right and like I think Like part of that like it was interesting because it was like such a it's such a different side to machismo this overprotective like I'll make all the money but like then you have to do all the things I don't think I've ever seen machismo depicted quite this way but like I don't know what else to call it that you would basically hide your family away and that they wouldn't stop you and that like you know it's good that you visit your son every weekend but like there's a lot of your son's life that you are just missing and not participating in and making your elderly father who's also taking care of his elderly parents take care of.
0: I would say like machismo is not the word that came to mind, but I also can't think of like a specific word that is like a general patriarchal way of understanding the world is like yeah. imposing your own rules and your own values onto things that are determined by like who is the quote unquote breadwinner.
1: Yeah, it was funny. And I think it's like also really astute earlier in the episode when you said like, are celebrity novels just contemporary versions of Duke novels? Because when he referred to the incident I assumed that the fan stalker had killed his baby mama in like some weird like situation when it turned out that he'd like broken the window and like that was scary enough. Yeah. I was like, oh, (laughs) like she's just like super duper not in the picture. And like, this is how she's not in the picture. And like you have sequestered your whole family away because of this like one instance. Wouldn't it have been enough to live on like the 10th floor of a condo with a doorman and like whatever else in Miami? Like... Like, this seems really extreme. And, like, I think, like, the extremity of catering to a hero's fear is, like... One of the things about romance that I'm about ready to retire as like an angst builder.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. And I'm glad you brought up Yadiel's mother because she is still alive. She's an actress. And the book has a really, at least from Ashton's perspective, and maybe we're getting into weirdest part now. So let me know, is the mother of his child your weirdest part? Yeah. Okay. let's just get into weirdest part, sexiest part. What do you want to start with?
1: I think we should start our weirdest part. We're already at that
0: door. Okay. tell me about your weirdest part.
1: (laughs) My weirdest part is the entire story of Yadiel's mother. The way that the story sets it up is that like she shows up basically nine months pregnant because she's a good Catholic and couldn't have an abortion. Okay. And she's like, all right, I don't want any custody. You have to pay for my plastic surgery to fix my, you know, body to pre-baby. And I never want you to mention my name again. And like, that's the mother of his child. But also the weirdest part about that is like there was no indication in the text that like she was like, hey, we had this physically intimate relationship. You came inside of me and inseminated an egg. Like there wasn't a conversation about her getting pregnant. It's just like she just shows up like fully engorged and then spawns and is like, now this is your full custody. You had absolutely no choice. Like, boom, bud. I thought that was really strange. Yeah. So I want to read the exact question Because I think what is really strange
0: about this book... Here's my note. So he says... We're in Ashton's perspective. And he says... He's remembering his own mother who passed away. And he describes his son as his biggest triumph. And he says... In those moments of darkest grief, he wished Yadiel had a mother who loved him as much as Ashton's had, but he couldn't change how things turned out. The earlier, when we get introduced to her, like it has this really flat description of like, because she's a good Catholic, she decides to carry the baby to term, but she, you know, insists that he takes it on full time and pays for her surgeries to fix her body. And then the second time we get this mention is this, like he wishes his son's mother loved him. Mm-hmm. And I said, it's this kind of resentment that refuses to, To look too deeply into the motivations of the third party that keeps us feeling like there's something personal rather than like something literary happening. Because I think a literary move would be like to give us a bit more of her. It's strange and kind of jarring to have this really ungenerous. I was expecting the book to be a bit more kind and generous, I guess. And it really isn't to this other woman.
1: You know, it's funny that you read it as kind and generous because I literally read it as like scaffolding. This is the mannequin without its clothes on. That third party feels so unlived in. No,
0: I don't think it's kind and generous. I would have expected the book to be a bit more kind and generous.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, it's not kind of generous. I don't read it as malicious either. It's like to say that it's clinical isn't correct, but it's more in that line.
0: So you feel like it's maybe like an error in the writing almost like something that was low priority on the development list. And then once we hit however many pages, there wasn't space to do anything else with it.
1: Because it's not important to the story as often like the way in which the secret baby came to be is not the most important part of the secret baby thing. Yeah. So, like, that's how I read that. I was like, oh, I can see this seam.
0: Yes, exactly. I think that's why it's so jarring, is that you start to see the process. It doesn't feel, I said personal, but I think you're right. It's not personal. It feels like a mannequin without clothes on. That's exactly right. It just feels like an idea that
1: didn't get the
0: attention that was intended
1: for it. And that the rest of the novel does such a good job of, like, creating. Like, there's so little of it, and so when you say it's jarring, it's jarring because this book is like actually very well executed.
0: Yeah, it's a good book. There are some times when there are, you know, slightly strange turns of phrase Mm -hmm. and like almost misuse of words. I should probably back that up with an example. And I have them. Okay, So the word sent shivers through his body, her utter confidence, the latent sensuality, the fact she now felt comfortable enough with him to try dirty talk in Espanol. Like latent didn't feel like the right word in that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Latent sounds right. Like the phrase latent sensuality is something we use all the time, but it's in reference to something that isn't surfaced. Whereas I feel like when a character whispers, is like straddling another character.
1: We've moved from the latent phase to the active phase.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like she's unbuttoning your pants and saying, I want you in Spanish. I mean, it's not latent anymore. <laughs> And there are those moments of like slippage in the text. And I think you're right. I do think the development of Yadiel's mother is like a similar instance. And there are these examples of like, that like latent isn't the only one where I was like, I think it's a latent sensuality. I understand that that's a phrase we use, but uh, you know, there's just something that's like incorrectly descriptive of it because it's not just like language is plastic. Like, no, like that word still has a specific utility and it's being used incorrectly here.
1: Right, it has a very specific meaning.
0: Yeah, and it, it is used to describe something, helpfully describe something. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost as if she was a sexy snail that left a sexy snail trail isn't as appealing as she had a latent sensuality, for example. So what you're saying, though, is getting towards my weirdest part, gesturing. And that is the idea of representation in this novel. And I apologize because I know we've been recording forever because I just decided to, like, spark on like the first wild hair I saw out of the corner of my eye early on. But I'm also bringing you another half-formed idea. Is representation enough to just have people there and say that they are the identity without going into it?
1: Okay, so I have... Two comments. Are you respre- referring specifically to the they them pronouns in the first two chapters?
0: In the first two chapters and then the character of Nino, I believe. Let me make doubly sure though. Those are the two instances I'm referring to. So I want to go to the first chapter just so people know what we're referring to and read the part that kind of was like, oh, okay. So we have a character introduced in the first two chapters named Sky. Hello, Mr. Suarez. I'm Sky. I'm here to take you to the conference room. Sky had close cropped brown hair and porcelain skin, wore a they them button on the lapel of their peach linen blazer, and carried a tablet tucked under one arm. Thanks. Ashton stuck his hands in his pockets. Um. Bah, 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 bah. I'll take you to the green room first, Sky said, gesturing for Ashton to follow. You can chill there before the table read. As Ashton followed them, he mentally ran through the show notes. He'd been sent by a producer the night before. But this is pretty much like the only time we'll see Sky. Another time we see Sky is giving out scripts Mm-hmm. None of the other characters wear pronoun
1: buttons. Yep, I have that in my notes.
0: I'm like, not totally like, oh, this is bad, because I'm like, it's nice to see a character just kind of casually accept they, them pronouns, make the assumption, and then correctly gender that person in their own mind. I think that's cool and useful.
1: But at the same time, I'm like, what does. What does Sky do that we needed to know all of those things about Sky? But I think Sky's utility here in this moment, and I've thought a lot about it, because the first time I encountered what I was. Would call button work was at an interview at the Museum of Science and Industry where everybody at the interview, and it was a group interview, was wearing their pronouns on buttons, but everyone who worked at the museum was doing it. And then they wanted us to put our names and our pronouns on little name tags to like be potentially part of the team. And what immediately became clear, and this was like two years ago now, people who were uncomfortable with this conversation were like, well, I'm a girl, obviously, and I use. She her and like didn't put their pronouns on the thing, and I'm like, well, you don't get the job now. Like <laughs> you missed part of what's happening, and so like the utility of Sky's character is immediately then I feel like a little misplaced because not everyone at Studio flicks or Screen flicks is wearing buttons, and like that was something that could have happened. But Sky's utility in this moment is more about telling us something about Ashton, right? Which is Ashton immediately sees the button and then immediately uses the correct pronouns,
0: which. We're now supposed to be like, oh, Ashton's a good person. But then it's like, well, you're taking this like opportunity to introduce a non-binary character, but they're not going to be like a close friend or like we're not going to develop them anymore besides the fact that they're gesturing towards the fact that the hero's a good
1: person mm-hmm. and that the studio cares about this stuff.
0: Yeah. But does the studio care or is Sky providing their own button? Great question. I think Sky's is providing their own button because
1: no one else at the studio is wearing one
0: yeah exactly but is that enough like is it enough to be like hey being a good person is observing a non-binary pronoun right and that's an important message and showing a hero doing it right and not making a thing out of it that's a good message but at the same time like this person's identity is solely in service to us thinking like a cishet male is
1: cool yes yes I guess I'm struggling. I think what makes the sky scenario feel like a place of struggle, which I totally understand and have in my notes, versus especially when it's compared to Latinx lived in representation and like the different kinds of Latinx people who are working on the crew from like different parts of both immigrant status and like diaspora status and like where they are in terms of their personal histories and their lived experiences, like that's so much more lived in and I think part of that's like the fact that there's so much Spanish in the novel Mm. and like people are using it and like it's only sometimes translated in English for us. Yeah, I loved that. I did too.
0: Especially when it's so easy to look up what things mean. Exactly. Exactly. I also feel this way when people get frustrated with people who don't speak English. It's like, well, most of the time you should be smart enough to use context to understand they're saying like you're in a checkout line at a restaurant. They're going to ask you normal questions. (laughs) You can probably figure out what's going on.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: The other aspect of this is the character of Nino. This is the reference. The other show regulars took their places around the table. On Jasmine's other side was Miriam Perez, the actress who would play her mother, and Nino Colon, the trans actor who'd play Carmen's assistant. And that's all the mention that we get. Nino does make several appearances throughout the book. I think it's kind of cool that you like have a trans actor and like it's not their whole thing, right? Yep. That's pretty dope. I thought it was dope as hell. But I I think I'm coming up against the same thing where it's supposed to like, compared to the other like lived like Latinx experience in this, it just feels like there could have been like something else, you know? A little something else. Even though like it doesn't have to be. And like that's the thing. Like I feel muddy about this. And I feel like every time we have a marginalized identity in a book, do we need to have like a fully fleshed out representation of them? Or is it enough to merely have them represented in the text and like normalize. Because I think about in film studies, A lot of people talk about the Silence of the Lambs and queer representation. So you have an out gay, trans, at least non-binary individual, but they want to murder women and wear their skin (laughs) as suits. And people made a thing about it when the movie was released, like, wow, look at this representation. And then the queer community, you know, 10 years later, was like writing about the fact that like, no, that's bad representation. Like not all representation is good representation. And I guess my question is, is all positive representation, I guess, good enough representation? I don't know how it would feel, you know, I don't know how it feels to read that because as a cishet white woman, God, I see myself represented all the time, positively and negatively. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what having this new experience would mean. But I think just like Alexis Daria, like I want to be, you know, the type of person who does it correctly or does it in a way that feels good and doesn't feel like you're a token.
1: I think what struck me about Sky-feeling token and where Nino didn't is that, A, we spent a little more time with Nino.
0: We spent enough time with Nino that Nino's whole thing wasn't like, here's the trans character.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think the work of normalization is different than the work of fully fleshing out. I don't know where those boundaries are. I don't know what that, I don't know what that shape is exactly, but I do know that normalization is important work. And like this book is making those moves, those gestures. And so like, I don't want to slap or clap it because like I noticed it, which means that people who don't think like me will also notice it. Right. And hopefully if they have a shitty mindset, will have their mind slowly changed or quickly changed ideally. So I don't know. Like i I also feel muddy about it. The fact that I noticed it and it it like was a a minor key harmony rather than like a full scale. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I can clearly see a difference between Sky and Nino. Mm -hmm. I think I managed to get to why I felt weird about Sky, which was like their existence is only in service of the heroes being understood as a good person. And that sucks. Whereas like Nino has like, one aspect of other personality aspects and is not, like, a tool in order to further our understanding of the hero or heroine. But there were times when, like, this book was talking about identities that it did feel like there was almost a checkbox going on or like times like you said like I noticed it I was like wow there's a lot of different identities represented in this novel if you're doing a lot of identities are you necessarily able to do them all well
1: and is that necessarily important in a romance novel where like the two central characters like you're working towards one hea rather than like the hea of everyone and like there was a moment where somebody said something about how important this show Is and that it's going to be bilingual, and that it is made for and by a diverse cast of Latinx folks, both in front of the screen and behind the screen. And so there was a moment where I was like, more than any romance that I've read in a long time, this book's internal project of like the characters knew that they were in something bigger than just their relationship was mentioned more than once. Yeah. And I feel like I hadn't read a romance novel where like it had those kinds of stakes in a while. Right.
0: Okay. There's the moment when she decides that she's got to end things totally. Yeah. With Ashton. And she's like, so I'm not coming back for a second season. And his reaction is like, why would you do this to me? And it's like, yeah. Well, what about that diverse casting crew of Latinx people who you've brought together? Like, they were never mentioned in that moment, you know? Yeah. Which she would have been fucking all of, like, everyone in showbiz is looking for a steady gig. Yeah. You don't have to be deeply embroiled in it to understand that television is a steady gig and a highly sought after one because of that. And yeah, like it would have been bad for everybody if she had quit this show.
1: Yeah, no, when he said you're sabotaging me and like, you know, don't make an emotional decision and I'm like, it ain't just you, bub. I know. I was like, I wish they
0: would acknowledge that there are other people and then at the end when it's resolved and they do the right thing, they still don't acknowledge all of these other people who are super invested in this project but I mean like which is to say like I'm really glad that this book tried and succeeded in a lot of ways there just are like sticky questions and I think it's really cool that these are the sticky questions we're asking as opposed to why is no one here different than the hero and heroine right like why is this like a really pat stereotype right this book doesn't do any of that and I think that's Awesome. But there are times when it felt a little wobbly. Mm-hmm. That was my weirdest part. That's <laughs> still like half formed, but I think we got to some good places talking it through. So weirdest part now done. This brings us to
1: sexiest part. What is your sexiest part, Morgan.
0: My sexiest part was, you know, in the moment, I didn't think it was, but it was one that I kept like thinking back on. And so that's usually a sign that it was quite titillating. And that's the first time they have sex, penetrative like vaginal penis and vagina intercourse. Mm -hmm. And the first time they have sex, they have sex from behind and they're both facing a mirror. I get freaked out looking in mirrors for extended periods of time. I start to feel like my face is slipping and changing (laughs) before my very eyes. So I don't think that this is something that I could bring to my boudoir repertoire. But it's really interesting in the context of like a television celebrity romance, this like pleasure of looking and observing your lover from a position that you wouldn't normally be able to see them. Like having sex in front of a mirror would not be totally dissimilar to watching yourself have sex on film, like on a television set. The idea of like being able to watch yourself is like a protagonist almost while you're having sex. Like having... The The experience of like being fully in your body, like conscientious in that way was really interesting and very sexy.
1: What was your sexiest part? Full confession. I thought all the sex scenes were my sexiest part. I will say Alexis Daria is a queen when it comes to sex scenes. I like her first novel, Take the Lead, also had incredibly good sex scenes. And the thing that's so sexy to me about all of them is like they're varied. And like the conversation around consent is so organic like the first time that they are having sex he's like I'm not gonna have penetrative sex with you and he's like don't ask me why don't ask me why in his mind and she doesn't ask him why she's just like okay like let's do some other stuff and then she's like lube and he's like got it what drawer is it in and it's like all of it is so corporeal as well as so well orchestrated that like their first scene and he's like fingering her and like coming on her tummy and and then he's like so amped up about it the next day like he has to jerk himself off in the shower and like he has like this weird ass like stream of consciousness and like unsexy stuff comes up in the stream of consciousness and he's like fuck where'd that come from wait let me think about coming on her tits and then like you know the sex scene that you mentioned is super hot and he's like really strong and like lifts her up onto a dresser and then like turns her around and I fully understood this as I was reading it I was like wow this is exactly like the kind of sex
0: scene Isabeau enjoys because you do have this very corporeal experience and then you go into her internality and it's like this is a passage I specifically highlighted and wrote IVD. She spent so long trying to get past his walls and now she was in. What she found there rocked her to her core. She hadn't been prepared and now with her emotional defenses demolished by waves of arousal coursing through her, she was perilously close to the abyss at the end of the jasmine scale. And like all of this happens while she's like getting pounded and I was like, Isabel loves this shit. She <laughs> loves
1: it. Isabel eats this shit breakfast, lunch and dinner. I loved every sex scene unabashedly. I also felt that way about Take the Lead though. Because it is corporeal, it is emotional. I love their inner monologues while they're having sex. I also loved that this was a book that was like, lube, condoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to be dismissive of it, I'm just agreeing with you.
0: I think the use of lube was great. I did not like the way they described how he applied lube because it would always <laughs> say that he like squirt (laughs) it into his hand. And whenever I read that phrase, I always picture someone like pouring it into their palm. And I like within pick, I was like, how is he going to apply it then? And like picturing him doing like toddler style. (laughs) He's like trying to mash it into her genitals and onto his own. I don't know. For some reason I was like, I wish it had said like applied to the fingertips or something.
1: (laughs) That would have been better. I see what you mean there. But like, it was the first time in a while that I feel like I'd read a romance novel that talked so actively about lube, which felt, you know, good. I'm glad that like, we're normalizing that part of sexual intimacy for lots of folks.
0: Yeah. But like, if you had to pick one. Oh, man. Oh, man. Someone was like, oh, my gosh, welcome to 1976. You are the editor of Avon. Oh, no. You can only have one sex scene in this book. Only one? Which one? gets the yellow highlight and not the red pin
1: i mean i guess i would have to say mirror as well because that seems so good but like there's so many like parts of it like i just found them so sexy
0: i want to talk about this because someone reached out to us and they were like they
1: asked us specifically what we thought about this cover it is a cartoon cover it's beautiful and like it sucks to say that it's a huge deal that we have two latinx people on the cover in an intimate embrace I've gotta say, like this
0: feels very close to a classic clinch cover.
1: It does, very close.
0: And I know that it was illustrated. I know how it was conceived of because it's mentioned in the acknowledgements. You know, I hope that there were two Latinx models who were paid for their work uh, modeling for the cover. I hope as many people got paid making it as possible, of course. But yeah, I do feel like this is much more, you know, they've got faces, they've got sexuality. Mm-hmm. This feels like a real evolution artwork, whereas like this feels like just like a natural continuation of the clinch cover as opposed opposed to like a refutation of it Mm -hmm. and that's what i'll say about that
1: (laughs) i think you're right the difference between an illustrated cover and like a bubble person cover is huge. Womance or no man's coming back all the way around. Yeah, I
0: still feel like it's a womance. The work for representation, I think people say diverse a lot, but this really had a wide range of identities present while it's centered on, you know, two cishet Latinx people. I think it did some good first steps. And then Alexis Daria was able to be inclusive and representative while still telling her own story or a story that she was, you know, able to tell her story as opposed to someone else's, I guess. And I got the tickles of having a crush while I was reading it. I looked forward to coming back to it, which I haven't for like a recently published novel in a while. And this thing has so much hype around it. And I was really worried. Um, But I think it met my expectations.
1: I agree. This met my expectations. I was delighted. I think it
0: would be a great beginner romance novel also.
1: I think so too. This is one that you can give to people who are like, I don't read romances because they're just porn. Yeah. It's like, meh. It's got that too, but it's got other stuff.
0: It's got that too, but it's also got that porn internality that Isabel loves. It's true. All right. Uh, Romance for you as well. Unabashed. All right.
1: So with that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah.
0: Whoa, golly, gee, thank you so much for listening to this
1: week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me.
0: And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our web
1: mistress is the incomparable Jane Bonsack.
0: And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best.
1: If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with <laughs> us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womans on Instagram, or email at womansmail at gmail.com. You can also hang out out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com.
0: You can support us by using
1: our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network.
0: Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week.